The following show has a lot of explicit content. I'm sure you'll like it because of that. It's Monday, October 3rd, 2022 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Things are not great on the economic front in the U.S., but the president and the secretary of the treasury haven't announced gigantic tax breaks that would overstimulate the economy that would need to be borrowed to pay for. They've not then decided to do zero interviews about that policy, and they also have not relied on the Federal Reserve to sweep in and clean up the damage in the saving bonds market as a result of their terrible move. Yes, a string of hypotheticals that you don't understand except understand this, that's exactly what's happened in the United Kingdom. It's fascinating how badly Prime Minister Liz Truss and Quasi Quarteng, her Chancellor of the Exchequer, have made a hash of things, a dog's breakfast, a cock-up. So now they have to walk back the cock-up. But first, they tried the charm offensive. Here's how that went. Trust joined Radio Leeds, Anna Cookson. Welcome to the Wake Up Call. Thank you for your time. Time is short, so I'm going to just blaze on into the questions. Lots from my listeners this morning. Carrie in Birchington says... What on earth were you thinking? The country was already in a state of recession. Another says, how can we ever trust the Conservatives with our economy again? And Lydia says, are you ashamed of what you've done? Are you? I think we have to remember what situation this country was facing. We were going into the winter with people uh, expected to face fuel bills of up to £6,000, huge rates of inflation. And you've made it worse. But also slowing, slowing economic growth. And what we've done is we've taken action to make sure that from this weekend, people won't be paying a typical fuel bill of more than £2,500, not just this year, but also next year. But isn't that cancelled out by the fact that you've you've making inflation work with the measures that you have brought in on Friday in the mini budget? People are worried about their mortgages and they're tearing their hair out over their pensions. I've got so many messages, Liz. This will curb inflation by up to 5%. When? What we're also doing is taking action this winter. Economists disagree. Then again, it was economists who said lowering the top tax rate would be a burden. In fact, it was a disaster. So how can you trust economists? I sometimes think I would trade the UK's leadership for our own if I could also trade the UK's broadcast media's directness for our own, but then my mortgage would be 10%. It is not worth calling the president by his or her first name. Great Britain did not elect Liz Truss, remember. The conservative voters as a whole, the Tories, did not elect Liz Truss. It was 175 members of the conservative party who did, and they got a leader who has her party in a position of trailing by 33% in the polls. She may be out of office soon. When? Next election, or maybe sooner, if her own party votes no confidence, echoing the sentiments of the markets and the public. On the show today, Senator Scott stymied by a pretty simple question. Are death threats good? But first, considering libertarians, there are three main schools of thought about them. If you're not one, they go something like this. You know, those fellows are really on to something. School one, school two, those fellows are always banging at the moon. And school three, those fellows have really lost the thread. Now, I will say to you the title of my next guest, law professor at Northwestern Andrew Koppelman's book. The title is How Libertarian Philosophy Was Corrupted by Delusion and Greed. And you know he is of the Lost the Thread school. 
But we will pull on that thread to inform us all. Andrew Koppelman up next. This is Jess Betancourt, the host of DNA ID, the only true crime podcast that exclusively covers cases solved using forensic genealogy. DNA ID goes behind the headlines to answer your questions about this remarkable new crime-solving tool, how it works, how cases are selected, why the cases were unsolved for so long, and how the justice system is addressing it. I include input from law enforcement to give you the inside scoop that we all crave with a straightforward, no-nonsense delivery. You can find DNA ID on any podcast platform. Episodes come out weekly on Mondays. One of the major intellectual strains of American conservatism is libertarianism, which can mean a few things to a few different people, but maybe in a sentence means something like trust the markets. But it's come to stray very far from its intellectual origins and stray into areas that not only are inconsistent, but my next guest argues somewhat dangerous for American politics. The name of the book is Burning Down the House, How Libertarian Philosophy Was Corrupted by Delusion and greed. Professor Andrew Koppelman is the author. Welcome to The Gist. Very happy to be here. So I didn't read but was aware of your excellently titled book, The Tough Luck Constitution and the Assault on Healthcare Reform, which in a sentence took you as a constitutional and congressional scholar. You looked at the Supreme Court's reasoning on the Obamacare cases and said, this is terrible, terribly thought out. But from that uh, initial impression came not only that book, but this book. Could you take me a little bit through that journey? I don't ordinarily uh, do government power. That had not been my scholarly interest. I was mainly interested in issues of individual rights. And I was asked to do a debate about uh, the Obamacare litigation. Obamacare had been held unconstitutional by two federal district courts. So I thought, all right, I'll do this. I'll read the two opinions. And I was just astounded by how bad they were and how they read of right to be free from government compulsion in purchasing insurance that had never before been heard of in American constitutional law. And so I wanted to know, where did this come from? Uh, and it became clear that the whole litigation was being driven by a libertarian law professor named Randy Barnett, who was importing his own ideas of a minimal state into the Constitution where it actually wasn't. And so uh, the fundamental aim of my book is to show that the litigation was based on that premise. If you get sick and you can't afford to pay for it, that's your tough luck. And that's in the Constitution, they said. Now, that's wrong as a matter of constitutional law. But I also was puzzled by this political ideal. What is it that draws people to this minimal state ideal? And so after I finished writing the book about the healthcare case, I just kept reading in this area. And I was surprised to find that some libertarians like Friedrich Hayek were more attractive than I remembered them from college the last time that I read them. And, you know, lots of people say, didn't you read Ayn Rand in high school? No, I only read Ayn Rand when I was in my 50s writing this book. And uh, I was horrified. And I thought that you know, the phrase libertarian fails to understand the difference between these different flavors. Libertarianism comes in flavors, some more bitter than others. So what was Hayek saying? What was he actually saying? Not how has he been interpreted or misinterpreted? Always with a writer, you've got to understand their context. 
Uh, in the late 1930s, the world's most admired economic managers were Joseph Stalin and Adolf Hitler, because they were the ones who had turned their economies around. Uh, Russia had been a rural backwater, was suddenly booming with industrialization. Germany had had this horrible depression and inflation. And now, because of all of the military spending, it was booming too. And England and France and the United States were, meanwhile, in the middle of depression. So there was a broad consensus that the only way to turn economies around was central economic planning. And that led Hayek, who was an economist from Austria, who was teaching at the London School of Economics, to say, no, central economic planning, a state-directed economy, is going to be wasteful and tyrannical. And he was right. That, uh, and what he was opposed to was the program of the British Labour Party, which wanted to uh, do exactly that kind of central planning. But it turned out to have a huge audience in the United States, which was somewhat misplaced from the beginning because Franklin Roosevelt never wanted central economic planning. He was just the wrong target. Uh, he had some corporatist ideas at the beginning of his term, but he pretty much abandoned them about two years in. So Hayek for his original thoughts, uh, gave birth to a strain, a, uh, a branch of economics. Did he see himself as that, a father of a new branch, or did he think his interpretation fit in with existing doctrine? How did he define himself? Well, he thought that there had been a debate in the late 1800s uh, within Austria and Germany about central economic planning and about whether a socialist state could engage in the proper calculations to run an economy. And Hayek thought that his teachers had won that debate and that Americans didn't know what uh, the results of those debates were. So he thought that he was bringing to the English-speaking world ideas that were already well established. But he did have one big innovation that was an advance over his teachers. He argued that there's way too much information in an economy for any central planner to know it. You know, people don't, there's a million people who want things for different reasons. The costs of different commodities constantly rises and falls. No central planner can know that. The only way to manage the thing is a price system. Yeah. Price, price signals are a gigantic innovation and should not be ignored. They're almost a natural phenomenon and they should be celebrated and you should understand them. Absolutely. But the thing about Hayek or one of the things about Hayek as a person, he definitely gave birth to this way of thinking like Edmund Burke or John Stuart Mill. But those guys weren't around to say, pass judgment on how their way of thinking was interpreted by the US founding fathers or by, I don't know, the Bush administration. Hayek lived until 1992. He saw most of how libertarianism was being interpreted. He was there and cognizant for everything that Ronald Reagan did. What did he say about how libertarian was being lived and how his work was being interpreted during his lifetime? Well, the big shift in his thinking, unfortunately, is that he became more and more scared that any government intervention in the economy 
was going to move us towards socialism, which is not an argument that he made in the original 1944 Road to Serfdom. So he was opposed to social security. He was opposed to any kind of social welfare provision. He was suspicious of regulation. Uh, and so he was quite enthusiastic about Reagan. He was quite enthusiastic about Thatcher. He was even enthusiastic about Pinochet in Chile. Uh, who I don't think were uh, really carrying out his core insight. Uh, they were all brutal in ways that his philosophy didn't really entail. So part of what I try to do in the book is show that uh, the original Hayek is better than the later Hayek. It also is the case that Ayn Rand became the popularizer of libertarianism, and I guess the inheritor in the popular imagination of what that uh, philosophy stood for. But they hated each other, didn't they? Well, I don't know if Hayek ever took note of notice of Rand. Uh, Rand uh, disliked Hayek because Hayek understood that you know, markets produce price signals but markets also sometimes injure third parties. So to take pollution. Uh, I can be producing something that you want to buy. And so I operate the Stinkworks and I produce something that you and lots of other customers want to buy. And that adds value to the world. But it gives all the children in the neighborhood around my factory cancer. And so if you look at the cost of my factory uh, and the benefits of my factory, my factory ought not to exist. The injury to the children vastly outweighs the benefit, but that's not going to be reflected in the price unless government steps in. The market can't be trusted to deal with external effects like pollution. And so Hayek said this, and he said, look, you know, there's got to be some regulation, and how much regulation there is is going to depend on the details. And Rand, who wanted an absolutely minimal government, was horrified by this. Why should you trust government to do that? But then she didn't really think through the problem of pollution at all. This major reason for regulation, she was very strongly against it. And she never seems to have grappled with the arguments for this major role of government. And that was characteristic of her thinking. She tended to be extremely dogmatic and extremely confident and extremely crude all at once. Yeah. And I think it was, you know, if you examine psychology or human motivation, it was very much working for her. She was a celebrated figure in her lifetime. I think she enjoyed that status. And the more extreme she was, the more celebrated she was. You know, her entire stance against compromising, compromising with, I don't know, Van Mises or Hayek was was one of the things that burnished her reputation among the true believers, of which there are many and many powerful people. Mm -hmm. And in fairness to Rand, uh, she had lived through the Re Russian Revolution. She was traumatized by that experience. Uh, she had seen brutality and incompetence. And then she just saw that where it wasn't. She thought that, uh, she th genuinely thought that John Kennedy was a fascist. It's just crazy stuff. You're right. Hayek never seemed to have said anything about Rand, which just blows my mind. I mean, it's unimaginable today. I mean, people, they, they made huge Hollywood movies about her books. She was on the cover of magazines. She was 
you know, one of America or the world's most celebrated public intellectuals, take what you want with that phrase, for someone of his ilk to have never uttered an opinion about someone so famous, it almost seems like a strategy. It couldn't have happened by accident. But we don't know. We don't know. What we do know is that the two of them get run together now. So one example I take early in the book is that uh, one of the big promoters recently of Hayek's idea is the journalist Glenn Beck, who promoted Hayek's Road to Serfdom on his program and made a book that was over 50 years old, suddenly a bestseller. And then in short order, he was promoting Ayn Rand as if she were selling the same product. And uh, he made a cameo appearance in a movie based on Atlas Shrugged. So in his mind, and I think in the mind of a lot of Americans, they run together and they just don't. Right. Although, you know, many more serious thinkers than Glenn Beck, not a high bar. You know, all the scholars of, say, Cato and most of them from AIE and, you know, many self-identified libertarians in academia would identify with both of them. A number of them, you know, would nitpick Rand a little bit. I don't think she's as championed by serious scholars. But it's not just, it's not the from the fervid brain of the guy who brought you all those inscrutable diagrams with these two run together. This is quite common among self-identified libertarians. Yeah, what you have to add to Hayek's ideas in order to make him look more like Rand is to believe that government regulators are always corrupt and incompetent. If you believe that, then uh, you are absolutely in favor of a minimal state. And that is intimated by some of Hayek's successors, like Milton Friedman. Friedman is really optimistic about what an unregulated market looks like. So, for example, he argued that civil rights laws weren't necessary because the market would take care of the problem. And he wrote that in 1962, two years before the Civil Rights Act. Uh, that's a lot of optimism. Yeah, Barry Goldwater embraced that. And that actually hurt him. I think America wasn't there. And I think it's one of those tests, you know, among Rand Paulites. Like, if you are a true believer, you have to commit yourself to that. Rand Paul has been cautious about that. The Civil Rights Act. Well, he knows he knows now, but if you go back in the trove of his yep. writings, he certainly seems to have uh, embraced that. So I guess a fundamental question, your book was interesting and I didn't really, I, I have read Hayek and I have read Rand and I didn't go through the intellectual exercise of seeing where the inconsistencies are and so you point them out. But to an extent, how important is it that people today, political actors today who are trying to achieve a political end are quote unquote getting wrong the intellectual underpinnings of their beliefs. Aren't they just, I mean, there can be many explanations, either the uh, copied version of the copied version of their ideology that they read, you know, doesn't represent the origins or they're uh, picking and choosing what they want for their own purposes. But the reason, you know, political theory would have that the reason that actors act today is because they want an outcome and the outcome they want is some, they're uh, upset with moochers, they're wary of the nanny state, I'm picking chapter heads. And so, yeah, if it's Hayek, that explains that it's Hayek, but it doesn't really matter in the current political context if they're getting Hayek wrong. What is really important is the arguments about how much of, say, a nanny state we have. Mm -hmm. Well, what fundamentally drives people in politics is some combination of interests and ideals. Uh, and so sometimes people have the views that they do because they generally 
They genuinely want a better country and they've got an idea of what a better country is. So part of what I'm doing in the book is trying to examine these ideas of what a better country would be that are offered by the libertarians. And you got to engage them on the level of political philosophy because that's what they're selling and try to figure out, is this good political philosophy or bad political philosophy? And a lot of it is bad political philosophy. And uh, I'm trying to show that. Um, but uh, the political philosophy also coincides with interests. So at the end of the book, I talk about climate change and the role of Charles Koch. And Koch began as an idealist. He was supporting libertarian causes long before he had any particular political influence. The political influence grew over time. But uh, the climate change denial that he funded so energetically turns out to coincide pretty precisely with his financial interests as a major investor in the fossil fuel industry. And that's really the sad result of the story that uh, I tell. Libertarianism today is a coalition between idealists, including many of my fellow academics, who really want to bring about a better world by limiting the state, and industrialists who would like to be able to hurt people without being bothered by the police. What do you think motivates Koch's recent foray into campaigning against over-incarceration? Um, well, I think that he is a sincere libertarian, that uh, that has been his view for a long time. And the idealism hasn't disappeared. Although, you know, it's hard to account within the terms of the idealism for climate change denial, unless you accept a really extreme libertarianism that is so suspicious of government intervention that it won't allow government to intervene even against major problems, which was offered by some of the libertarian thinkers that Koch himself tells us influenced him. And at the end of the book, I go through some of the ideas of Murray Rothbard and of Ludwig von Mises that I think are the best ideological justification for what Koch has done with respect to climate change. What do you make of the von Mises caucus, or I think the Mises caucus, or there is this new strain of libertarianism that is, I don't know, I would analogize it to something like on the left and socialism, this this sect that maybe self-identifies as the dirtbag left. I, I don't know if you've been uh, following how the crack up of the New Hampshire Libertarian Party has played out, but there is this Mises caucus that has uh, taken hold to some extent among libertarian circles. Do you know about them? I do know about them. Uh, one of the things that I tried to do in this book was consider libertarian ideas in their strongest and most attractive form. And I've got to say that the writers who I take up, not a single one of them is a racist. Every single one of them is uh, off claiming that uh, this is a right of all human beings to be free, have minimal government and all of that. However, in American culture, when you talk about moochers and looters and trespassers, uh, racists hear those words and they know exactly who they think you're talking about. And so part of the appeal of libertarianism and has been that racist appeal. And what has happened within the Libertarian Party is that that group who already were attracted to libertarianism have gone to meetings, have packed meetings, and are taking over the party. And what do they believe? Uh, they believe and that uh, somehow 
the borders of the United States are the common property of the white race. This is a very strange deployment of the idea of property, which really makes no sense in terms of property law that has ever existed anywhere. But they think that there are these dark-skinned trespassers who are coming, invading somebody else's land and taking it over. It's a very silly idea. Andrew Koppelman is the John Paul Stevens Professor of Law at Northwestern University, and his latest book is Burning Down the House, How Libertarian Philosophy Was Corrupted by Delusion and Greed. Thank you so much. This has been so much fun. Thank you. And now the spiel. Donald Trump got up to some tweeting. Wait, he was banned from Twitter. He got up to some truth socializing, where the tweets are called truths. In his crosshairs, only semi-metaphorically, the former transportation secretary who served him for almost four years. Well, she went from confirmation until two weeks before he left. Yes, Elaine Chao quit on January 6th. So there Trump was truthing about her and her husband, a guy named Mitch McConnell. He didn't like some initiative or other of McConnell's and ended the tweet, sorry, the truth, but not the truth, with, in any event, Either reason is unacceptable. He, meaning McConnell, has a death wish, must immediately seek help and advice, spelled wrong, from his China-loving wife, Coco Chow. Now, Elaine Chow's last name is Chow, but Trump spelled Chow, C-H-O-W. Why? No one knows. The people on Truth Social thought it was brilliant, but couldn't understand why she was called Chow. Some helpfully said, well, it's just a phonetic spelling of her last name. And the Coco part? Again, no one knows. They just took it as hilarious and insightful. The death wish part is not good. It is not a direct threat, but it is also not not a threat. It's bizarre. It's indecipherable. The whole thing is xenophobic. I'm going to say probably racist. So as much as I hate allowing Trump to set up residence in our collective brains, I do think it is right and proper in such circumstance to ask Republican officials who continue to pay fealty to the most important Republican in the land, how do you stand by this? The right answer might make them a little uncomfortable, but they would say something like, "Mm, I don't stand by it, or, you know, it's wrong, and then pivot, pivot, different talking point, we're fine, except... Very few can do this. Florida Senator Rick Scott had two choices for his relatively simple and easy to predict question. Hey, what do you think about the death threat? First, he was asked by Margaret Brennan on Face the Nation. Do you rebuke it all? Well, I think what we got to do is we got to bring everybody together. I'd also say that what Vice President Harris said yesterday that our day before yesterday that, you know, if you, if you have a different skin color, you're going to get relief that's faster. Not what the, that does, that's, that's not, not what the vice either. president so said. So I think what we've got to do. That's not what the vice president said. She talked about yeah. equity exactly and the problem within FEMA. Correct. That's right. Brennan did a good job. Don't make this about Kamala Harris talking about equity. Make this about Donald Trump talking about death wishes. At least say, you know, the death wish part is not right. Well, here's Scott's stab number two or whack number two at the orange pinata. The question, very hard question to deal with. Isn't talking of death wishes kind of dangerous? I I think we all have to figure out how do we start bringing people together 
and have a common goal to give every American the opportunity to get a great job, their kids to have an education they believe they can be anything, and make sure everybody lives in a safe community. That's what I do every day, and I try to bring people together to do that. Very good, but perhaps you misinterpreted the question to be, how do you live out the Boy Scout oath as an adult? Or, I believe the children are the future, do you? That wasn't the actual question. The actual question was, death wish, endorsable, or condemnable? Scott's answer. I believe that what the, I believe what the President Trump was talking about is the fact that we can't keep spending money. We are, we're going to hurt our poorest families the most with this reckless Democrat spending. And we cannot, we got to stop it. We can't cave into their spending. Nope. Not a question of fiscal policy, a question of violence advocacy. Plus, what seemed more stupid than racist, but also pretty racist. What about that? Scott, perhaps chastened from his Face the Nation session, was asked the same question by Dana Bash on CNN, State of the Union. At least then, he didn't act as if he were being asked, what does the promise of America mean to you, when he was really being asked, is it okay to be racist? Well, look, I, I can never talk about, respond to why anybody else says what they said, but here's what is the way I looked at it is, I think, you know, what the president is saying is, you know, we've, there's been a lot of money spent over the last two years. Uh, we've got to make sure we don't keep caving to Democrats. It's causing unbelievable inflation and causing more and more debt. Um, as you know, you know, the president likes, likes to give people nicknames. You can ask him how he came up uh, with the nickname. Uh, I'm sure he has a nickname for me. Um, but. You know, here's what I know. We, we got to watch how we spend our money. We got to stop this inflation. Um, and, you know, and I, don't, I don't condone violence and I hope any, no one else condones violence. Nicknames are one thing, but this, this, is, this appears racist. Is that okay? It's never, ever okay to be a racist. And if they do, I will be the first to call it out. Unless in this particular instance where you actually did ask me to call it out, in which case I will squirm and equivocate and turn it into a discussion of the policy undergirding the fact that Trump is casually evoking the death of a political enemy rather than the fact that Trump is talking about the death of a political enemy. This whole pas de deux, whenever Trump says something indefensible and then Republican lickspittles are asked to defend it and they can't, uh, we have seen it all before. The re Republican toadies squirm a little bit, and there are never any consequences. A ritual humiliation by proxy continues to hollow out the core of the Republican Party, and it all becomes so familiar. We've seen it. We've lived inside it. It has been our defining experience, or was for four years. And we thought maybe the post-Trump presidency would not be characterized by this. The post-Twitter ban would allow for some evasion of the effect I've just described. But we can't evade it, as you heard. And I do not criticize Bash and Brennan for bringing it up. It is a horrible thing to say. Republicans should be made to answer for it. But one reason that Trump says these things, aside from the fact that he's Trump and he's damaged, is that Trump is banned from Twitter and is out of office. I support both, by the way, but it is an inevitable consequence of that status. He needs his attention fixed. When he could hold a rally as president and draw a crowd as president for saying outrageous things for a president 
statement to say that's what he'd do. It slaked his ego. When Twitter was used as an attention machine that he could get his fix off of by tweeting kofefe or hamburgers or even once in a while tweeting something that wouldn't shame a decent person, which also went on, that's how he used Twitter. Yeah, he also wallowed in the drack calling for members of the squad to return to their countries of origin, even though three quarters were born here. But mostly the outrage was that he was an outrageous president. But now that he's not president, he has to be extra outrageous to get attention from Outrage Sunday Show interviewers. He has to lead a crypto QAnon rally to get the same kind of dopamine hit that he once got just for calling Colin Kaepernick a son of a bitch. And online, cracks about Mika Brzezinski's face, they don't get enough attention, they get ignored, so he has to do the toe touch into real violence against specific officials. Once he could, simply retweet a video mislabeling Ilhan Omar as dancing after 9-11. The effect of which would be, Ilhan Omar said, of putting her life in danger. Can't get that effect anymore. Now he tweets, sorry, he truths content indicating that Mitch McConnell's life should be considered in danger, cutting out the middleman, or more often, woman. Again, between the alternatives of Trump having access to Twitter and the apparatus of the White House and the presidential briefing podium, and not, I definitely like the not, but just like the economic inflation that Rick Scott says is what Trump was getting at, there is outrage inflation coming from the social media output of Donald J. Trump. It's horrible to have current events still be a gigantic exercise in placating the infantile neediness of one American. But here we are again. The truths won't set us free. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the assistant producer of The Gist. Gist senior producer Joel Patterson was on the road to serfdom, only it was serfdom with a U. And the waves of progress were actual waves. And not very progressive, though they did get bigger and could be quite dangerous. The COO of Peachfish Productions is Michelle Pesca. The Gist is produced in collaboration with Lipson's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperoo, Jeeperoo, Dooperoo. And thanks for listening. <laughs> 